chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and his inner being, and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is having this prayer to the church in Ephesus. And one of the things that we want to be looking at, this idea of what Paul's praying here, is really significant. The reason for that is that it's not that Paul is just asking them Um, to be strengthened so they could do stuff, right? He's having a very specific prayer, and I think this is God's heart for us as we look at um, his prayer. We see that he's asking that they'd be strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner person or their inner man so that, why? So that we could do? No. So that Christ would dwell. His desire and his prayer is that as they're growing and as they're being strengthened, that Christ's presence would dwell in them And it's important for us to understand that that God's desire, God is relational. And his desire is to be with us and us with him. I think so often Christianity, religion in general, is reduced Christianity to a bunch of rules to do and a bunch of things to do and not do. And if we do well, then we're good. And if we don't do well, then we're bad. If you do well, you go to heaven. If you don't do well, you go to hell. But God is a God of relationship. He created us to be relational. And His heart and his desire in this prayer is that as the Holy Spirit starts changing the believer and making us more and more like Jesus, that God's presence would dwell within us. That when we trust him, his spirit indwells us. But this text isn't just talking about this uh, relational interaction. It's also speaking of an idea of preeminence. That Jesus would would be the center of our being, Right? That we'd be relational in connection with God, but, but not only would be the center of our being, but that our life would then revolve around him. That there would be a level of, of preeminence, that he would be our Lord. And, and the text is this on, it kind of speaks of this ongoing work, that it's not just this one-time work where God is now at the center of our lives, but that he's growing and expanding the real estate in our heart and our lives so that he is ruling and reigning and more and more, and we are ruling and reigning less and less. I think that we can all relate with wanting to be in control of everything, and sometimes it takes time for us to trust Jesus more and more to get to that place. And so one of the ways to look at it is that some uh, might look at the idea of being a follower of Jesus as we're inviting Jesus to be a part of our life, right? Like we have our life and we're inviting him and he has his section. So maybe that's Sundays. Sundays might be the time that you interact with Jesus, but the rest of the week is your thing. And, and, and so we're inviting him in to our life. But what we see in this text and what we see throughout scripture is that God has this story and he is inviting us into his story. And so the idea is not that, that Jesus has this little section and is compartmentalized, but that we are participating in a larger story that he is working out in the world and using us to be a part of that. And so it's a different mindset that he's seeing. Now, why? 
To what end is Paul asking that we'd be strengthened? To what end is he desiring that Christ would dwell? What is the big goal in all of this? And we see that in verse 17. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, what's the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's so that we might be rooted and grounded in love and that we might learn with all the saints the depths and the greatness of the love that God has for us. We can't skip over this. This can't be just another thing we look at. Like, think about the ramifications of what Paul is proposing here and what he's asking for. He's wanting our inner person to be strengthened, that the Holy Spirit would start would start changing us, that Christ would dwell and have preeminence so that we can grasp, know, comprehend, be rooted in and grounded in love. Now, before we go any further, I need to address the question, what is love? We hear that word. I think many of us have something that pops into our mind. You know, maybe it's this Hallmark movie around Christmas time, you're like, that's love. I want that. It's not real, okay? <laughs> what is love? Now, what's interesting is that the English language, for all of its benefits, uh, there's not very many. It, we only have one word for love, right? So what that means is I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog, if I had one. And I love ice cream. All very different types of love. But we use the same exact word. Like, we love all those things very differently, hopefully. And so, we use one word for all of these different aspects of love. Which, in many ways, for us, they are. So, love, I think, in America especially, has been very convoluted. And it's, been very, it's, it's become weakened, I would say. Um, many other languages have different words for, for different types of love. Now, to make matters worse, love has been very distorted. It's been, very, it's been distorted so much because it's been used, um, the word has been used in abuse, right? It's been used in um, things and behaviors that's called love, but it's really not. And so your mind's like, this says it's love, but it doesn't seem right. It seems off. Um, it's been used in ways that's actually opposite. Another area I think that love has been used, but it's, it's, it's been used in this very transactional form, that, that love um, is, is a transaction. Like, I'm going to love you so that you love me. I'm going to love you so I get this back. If I do this, then you'll love me, right? That love is very transactional. And when the transaction breaks or stops, then love ends. Um, another area I think that love has been really distorted is through manipulation, right? So that, that if you love me, then you'll do these things to prove your love for me, do these things for me. If you do love, if I, if I love you, then, then I expect, like, it's this very manipulative formless, and that's not love. It's not love. And it's good to address this because I think many of us in this room have experienced distortions of love. 
And here's the reality. I've never met anybody that doesn't want to be like genuinely, truly, like real deal loved. And so the best way I think for us to understand love is really to look at the one who defines it, to look to the one who is it. And the Bible uses different words for love. What's interesting is the Old Testament, the word often when you see um, love in Old Testament, the word is hased, right? And it's often translated as mercy, right? Now, mercy is, an, is, a, is a, a favor or a kindness that's given to somebody that is um, undeserved, right? So mercy would be like, I deserve wrath or punishment or whatever else. And mercy is saying, I'm not going to give that to you. I'm going to show you kindness, right? So we get this word of being undeserved and, and, and not worthy of or deserving something opposite. The New Testament uses a se- several different words for love. One of them is phileo, which means the idea of brotherly or affection or, or, or camaraderie. Another one is agape. That's often used for the love that God has for us. Um, it's also kindness. It's love. It's, it's very this one-way kind of mercy, non-transactional, undeserved. And so I would say that um, how we could define love is mercy, kindness, unconditional, undeserving, inexhaustible. One of the words in, uh, that the Old Testament has said that I really liked is zeal, like a zeal for somebody. Like that's a cool definition. And so we have the Bible using these different words. But even more important than that is 1 John 4 in two different parts tells us that God is love. And I've talked about this a lot, and I will continue to talk about a lot. That is so impactful to understand, right? Because love cannot exist in singularity, right? Like, I could be like, I love, i got to love something, right? I just can't exist in love. So God, the eternal God, existing before time and space is love. How, do, how does that work? Well, God is relational, and God is in relationship and has always existed in relationship. In fact, the Bible defines that as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing for all of eternity, loving one another, preferring one another, interacting and sharing this love for one another. It's a beautiful picture of of the Father, the Son, preferring one another, the Father sending the Son, the Son sending the Spirit, right? There's this this camaraderie, this love. And what we learn early on in Scripture, especially in the book of Genesis, is that God in many ways opened up that relationship that he has experienced for all of eternity, and he invited humans to be a part of that. He made us in his image to be relational, but to also interact with himself. And he entered into a relationship with human beings and so that we could enjoy him and he could let us experience the love that he is. And so we see that God wanted to share this love, this unconditional, undeserved, inexhaustible zeal with us. He wanted to share himself with us. This is the love that God has for us and the love that he wants us to have for others. A love that's not conditional, a love that's often undeserved. And I would say that I don't know of anybody in this room that doesn't want that back, right? And the beautiful part about what we're going to be looking at here is that's the love that God has for you. And it changes things. So back to the book of Ephesians. He's praying that we would be rooted 
and grounded in this love. Now, we looked at it a little bit last week, but the word rooted, it's where a plant gets nourishment. It's where the plant has stability. It's, it brings a level of um, groundedness. The roots are also under the surface. We talked about that last week, how often... You know, the things that we're trying to work on or change or our lives or stuff that's above the surface, it's the stuff that's seen. And, and we see that it really begins with us getting below the surface, the stuff that's not seen that God is wanting to change and work on in us. But he's saying rooted and grounded. Established means, um, it means, grounded means established, building on a foundation, things like that. And he's saying be rooted and grounded in this love, this love that God defines. Now, what's interesting about this is that it, when I, I used to read this text all the time, and I never connected, and maybe you have, and you're sharper at it than I am, but I never connected that this love, I always, like, in my brain, interpreted like loving one another. That's how I read it, right? So I'd read this, and I'd go, okay, rooted and grounded in love. Like, I need to love people I need to love God. I was looking through the lens of that it was about me. But what this text is talking about is that we're rooted and grounded in the love that God has for us. You may have heard me say many times that, and in part of kind of our mission is that we're formed by God's love, right? That we're, we're loved by God and we're wanting to learn to love God and our neighbor more in everyday life. God loving you is forma- it helps form us. It, it's form- formative. That's what I'm looking for. It's formative. To know and be rooted in the ground that God loves you right now in this space with all your flaws, with all your struggles, with all your weakness, in any way, shape, or form, that God loves you with a zeal, with a passion. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. But he loves you. There's something about that that is very, very profound. And so Paul is saying that we can find stability and nourishment in the fact that we're loved by God. That we're rooted in God's love for me, not my love for God or for other people. And the text goes on to explain a lot more about that idea. And so it leads, just kind of a quick sidebar to the question, like, where do we find stability? Where do we find nourishment? Where do we find our grounding? Because if you're anything like me, it's not often in the fact that I'm loved by God. Many find our stability and grounding in the love that somebody else may have for us, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? We want it to be loved. We want to be in relationship. We want it to be healthy. We might find it in jobs, careers. We might find it in identity and being a parent, whatever it may be. But we're seeing through Scripture, last week we looked at in the faith, the idea of the, of the gospel. This week we're seeing it in the idea that we're loved by God. This has a formative effect on us. And here's what's happening. If we're wanting to love others more, if we're wanting to love God more, we have to start with the fact that we're loved by God. We have to start there. Because if we don't start there, then what ends up happening is we're loving to be loved rather than because I'm loved, I do. It, it looks, here's the thing, it, it's so sneaky, it looks the same on the outside. If you look at somebody trying to earn God's favor or somebody that's functioning out of being loved by God, they're doing good things. It looks good. 
They're doing, it's their life is they're living in a way that looks good, but there's a difference. One is functioning out of fullness and one is functioning out of a deficit and no person, no thing, no nothing can fill that emptiness that they're trying to long and pursue. And what so happens is it brings a fragility that, that any little circumstance causes fear and rejection and all of these things to come piling in. And so he, now what's cool about this is Paul is saying not just that we'd be rooted and grounded in love, but that we would, with all the saints, right? A saint in scripture is anybody that's a follower of Jesus. A Christian is a saint. With all the saints that we would experience and better understand this love. God's love is best understood and experienced in relationship with other followers of Jesus. On the flip side of that, often some of the worst, cruel nastiness is also experienced by followers of Jesus. And I apologize. Sometimes we're the worst at each other. I don't know what it is, but man, we could be terrible. But God's design is that it's through followers of Jesus, it's through Christians that God's love is experienced, it's manifested, it's shared, it's experienced, all of these things, it's through followers of Jesus. We're his body, right? He has all this language to show that we're the ones that are, are working these things out. In fact, Jesus said it was by our love for one another that we'd be identified as his disciples. And so he says three different things. He said, together apprehend, together know, together search out, all of these aspects. To apprehend means take hold of, take ownership. And I love how he uses like four dimensions, like width, depth, height, length, all of these things. Like God's love is so vast, so big, it is unsearchable, it's undiscoverable, it's greater than we can measure, it's deeper than we can understand. Like it is insane. And so we get to spend our whole life understanding this love that he has for us. We can never fully grasp it. To what end? So that we might exude the fullness of God. That we might overflow the fullness of God. The very end of verse 19. What's the fullness of God? His love. The word exude, or, or that we might, uh, I'll get the exact word here, is that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The idea is, is, is that, that we're filled to the brim. Like we're overflowing. Like that it's this idea that God's filling us, but it's, it's spilling out to those around us. So we might be filled with the fullness of God. Not that just we store it inside, but that it's spilling out and we can't contain it. So the idea is that God is working this in us. And it involves often, it's ongoing process, so it's almost this idea that the measure that God's filling is expanding. Which makes sense, because what's happening as anybody begins to follow Jesus, right, there's aspects of us that's being emptied out, and the idea is that God is then filling that space with his presence. And, with, and it's changing us, right? And that's why I think anybody that's walked with Jesus any amount of time, we know that our desires when we first started walking with Jesus have changed, or before we were followers of Jesus, has changed. Because God's doing this internal work. It's not that we're struggling, like, I just got to quit wanting these things. It's like, there's a little bit of that, but often God starts changing our desires from the inside out. And so we're exuding, we're being outpouring of the fullness of the Spirit. Now, I, 
want this. I think anybody was like, yeah, I want the fullness of God to like pour out in everybody's life. Like I want to have that be a part of what's going on. But what's interesting is so often my brain clicks in and I go, okay, in order to do that, it's going to involve work and performance and I need to do these certain things right. It's up to me to make sure that God's fullness exudes out of my life. But we see this text saying something very different. What is it saying? It's saying this idea that as Jesus be- takes up more and more real estate in our hearts by faith, the more I grasp the love that God has for you and me, God's fullness invades my life. And it begins to spread. It's not about what I do. His love for us is more of a response for him and to others. And God begins to spread take up more real estate in our lives. The fact that we're loved by God changes, literally changes us. It changes us. The more that we rest in that. Let's jump over to Romans 8 real quick. Because there's another awesome verse about love. God's love for us. One day, I'm going to do a series on Romans chapter 8 because it is awesome. It is so rich, probably would have to be like four parts just for this one chapter, but the section I want to draw our attention to is going to be in verse 31. Before I read it, Romans 8 is Paul's giving a, a, in one chapter, he gives this full recap basically of the effects um, and the benefits essentially and the results of following Jesus, Right? From the very first verse, like, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he kind of goes on to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And what about suffering? And what about prayer? And what about being changed? And who's making us more like Jesus? It's awesome. It's an awesome, awesome chapter. And the buildup really gets us to verse 31, where he starts talking about the effects of being loved by God and how it's displayed in Jesus. And what I love about it, it's very practical It's very profound at the same time as we understand the ramifications of Jesus' work. And so, verse 31 says this, And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will uh, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who raised and who sits at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Well, then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or dangers, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to the the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul, trying to help us better understand this, is asking some rhetorical questions, and he starts with the first one. If God is for us, who can be against us? You guys, such a rad question. This is why. He gives us the answer, but we're going to expand upon it. He says, for God did not spare his own son, right? He gave him up for us. How will he not give us all things? Here's the reality. Because of our mistakes and because of our sin, God can be against us. In fact, I would say that God 
should be against us. In fact, Scripture says that. That, be, that the wages of sin is death. Like our, our rebellion against God at times even we don't even realize or at times when, just moments, God could be and should be against us, but he's not. Why? Because he came against Jesus on the cross. And he poured out his wrath on him for us. The good news is this. God is not against you. He's for you. Because he wants you to be with him. And then he goes to the second question. Well, who should bring a charge against God's elect? The idea of charges, right? Legal term, right? When somebody gets arrested, what are the charges, right? You've stole a car. Okay. That's what he's talking about, charge. Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies as his answer. The word justified means to declare somebody not guilty, right? That's what it, it, it literally means. It means to be declared not guilty. You never did the wrong thing. This is awesome because not, it's not just that God, I think so often people go like, well, God, God just, can just, why didn't you just forgive it? Like, why does God just overlook it? Because God is a just judge. Judges that let guilty people go free are not just. And I don't think anybody here would be like, yeah, we should let all the guilty people go free. Like, somebody murders your family and they're like, yeah, they should just get off. No, there needs to be justice. We demand justice. Why, why would we not demand that from God himself? But here's the beautiful part about this, is that God doesn't overlook sin, but because God's righteous requirements and righteous judgments were fulfilled through Jesus, because we're not able, essentially God is charging Jesus for our sin. God is the only one that could bring a charge against us, but instead, Jesus took our place. With that, this means this. God is not waiting for you to mess up so he can smart strike you down. I think so often, people are like, man, God's just like, I feel like anytime I mess up, God's like, see, did it again. He's not waiting for you to mess up to bring a charge against you. He's waiting for you to come into his presence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is not waiting for you to get everything dialed in so that you could be with him. He's saying, come as you are. I, have cl I will clean you. I will, I'm, I'm going to justify you. I'm not going to bring a charge against you. Because Jesus was charged in your place. And then he says, well, who can condemn? Jesus was condemned and rose again and still intercedes for us today. God is the only one that could condemn us. And he didn't. Why? Because he condemned Jesus in our place. And what's cool is Jesus still stands as our advocate, interceding, like a lawyer. It's almost as Jesus is a lawyer to this day, defending you, saying, I have done everything necessary. I have forgiven. I have taken on this sin. I have done all that's necessary to be in right relationship with God. Jesus is still to this day our advocate, our lawyer. That's why Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Which is interesting because I think often when we feel stuff that's condemnation, that we're, you're, not doing, you're, not, you're not doing good or you messed up, sometimes that's not God. But other times, it's God. It's called conviction. And what God's desire in that isn't that you go like, beat yourself up like, oh, I've messed up again. It's like, no, God's saying, listen, that thing that you're pursuing is not good. That thing that you're running after will destroy you. It's wrong. It's an offense to me. It's damaging. Come to me. I love you. I paid for that. I died for that. Like, come back to me. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning to God going, I'm sorry, thank you. It is God's reminder that you're loved by him. Conviction is a reminder that you're loved by God and that you would turn to him from what we're pursuing. And then he leads to the last question. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And then he just kind of answers the question. I'm sure, I'm confident that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not situations or people or forces, spiritual forces. No, there's not even matter or time or space or nothing in the world can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even death or life, not even time, not space, not even you. Not even you can separate, be separated from the love that God has for you. You can't do it. You can try, and some of you have. But nothing can separate you from the love that God has for you. Now, Paul says something very powerful here in Romans that makes all the sense in the world when we look at it through this paradigm. He says, therefore, we are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does that mean? That when we are functioning in his space, that we are loved by God. And that there's nothing we can do to change that. There's nothing we can earn that. That he is passionate and has a zeal for us. It frees us. It will change you. You will do good. You will want to respond in, in works. Like those things will happen. But it changes us and it frees us. What does it free us? It frees us from fear. It frees us from the fear of messing up. The fear of am I doing enough? Am I giving enough? Am I good enough? It frees us from condemnation. It frees us from the, all of the, the pressure that the world places on us to impress one another, to press God. You don't have to impress God. You don't have to prove yourself to him. He sees you as you are and he loves you. To know that we're loved, to know that God, God's pleasure is on us because of Jesus and Jesus alone, to know that it frees me to run hard in life because the punishment has been paid I can run trying to love Jesus, and if I fail, like, thank you, Jesus. Like, I'm going to keep going. He's not going to reject me. He's not going to throw me away. He's not going to do any of that. It allows us to have victory. It allows us to be conquerors, more than conquerors. Because God's love is working in us. And I, what's cool is as we let this settle in, it will result in us loving others. It will. It will result in us loving God. Like those things will begin to happen more and more. This is where we have to start. Let's close by turning back to Ephesians real quick. Verse 20. You guys have, I'm sure anybody that's been around Christianity for any moment of time have heard this verse. But today we're seeing it in context, okay? I think we've all read it. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than uh, all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He's saying, my prayer is that the presence of the Holy Spirit will invade your life and Christ will dwell in you richly and so that you might be rooted and grounded in love. Now, you might discover with all the saints what's the richness and the glory and the beauty of the love that God has for you, this love that's inexhaustible, this love that nothing can separate you from, and, and that you would, you would overflow with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do that and so much more. The prayer is that as the fullness of God, that, that God would answer that prayer and do so much more. He, in fact, he will do so much more than that, more than you can even imagine. But the request is that we would know the love, be rooted in the love, and that that love would overflow to those around us.
And that is my prayer for each and every one of you. And so as we transition to responding to this love through music and through communion, you're invited to participate. You may not need, you don't, may not need to sing. Like maybe you just want to like sit and kind of meditate on the idea like how am I not, what areas do I not believe that I'm loved by God and, and that God's not at work. Like maybe there's something that God's impacted. You can respond in this time and just, and just listen and just maybe just pray. Or you can sing. Communion's available up at the front. If you're a follower of Jesus, this, the whole act of, of sacrament or communion or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, is done in remembrance of what Jesus has done. That Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. And the purpose of it is that all this stuff that I'm talking about right now, that the Christians would be reminded every time they gathered or whenever they did it of this truth. Why? Because we forget it. We forget it. We need to be reminded that we are loved by the Father, that it will impact us and change us. So you can come and grab that. You can take it whenever you'd like. We're not going to take it at a special time. But when you're partaking of that, you're remembering what God has done for you, how he's died for you and lives for you. And if anybody has any questions after and even any prayer, I'll be available out front. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, our prayer is Paul's prayer that you'll help us under, better understand this love that you have for us and this love that you have for the world and that it'll impact us and that it'll change us. Lord, we don't get it. And I pray for those that have not ever experienced this type of love that they'll experience at this very moment and that it'll have a profound effect on their soul and on all of our souls. Bless the rest of the time that we have in worship and bless the food that we're going to have in a little bit. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.